think my general point is that it doesn't help to say because lawyers blah 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 it's not gonna work right if it's not gonna work why don't we all just go home why bother trying anything i'm chad may and this is technically legal a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law where each week we'll talk to a different mover or shaker in the legal and technology field We'll learn a little about them, what they've been up to, and hopefully get some real-world tips that will help lawyers better use technology and legal practices. In episode 12, we talked to Jay Um, the founder of Six Parsecs, an innovative company providing insights about legal markets. And we also talked to Jason Baymig, the founder of Ironclad, a contract management and workflow automation app. There's a lot of good content out there nowadays about legal tech and the changing nature of the legal industry. And that obviously means there's some great writers out there writing about the topic. Two of my favorites are Casey Flaherty and Ken Grady, both of whom I was lucky enough to get on the podcast. A few months ago, I found another new favorite legal tech writer, Jay Um. Writers like Casey and Ken and Jay have a depth to their writing that either you have or you don't have. So I was pretty excited when Jay agreed to come on the podcast. And I learned pretty quickly where the depth of her writing comes from. As you will hear, throughout her life, Jay has interacted or worked with lawyers, most recently as Director of Strategic Planning and Analysis at Seifarth Shaw, the firm she left to launch Six Parsecs. She has a very deep understanding of what is going on in the law and the changes that are happening. But throughout it all, she has some fundamental themes. These themes include things like stop using lazy excuses, excuses like because lawyers are this or that, or because this is the way we've always done it. Another concept Jay identifies with is that empathy is really needed to evoke change in the law. And then finally, another concept I noticed when I was reading her bio on her Medium page is that Jay likes to make sense of things, but also likes to make them sparkle. I've been around lawyers a long time. I've worked with them uh, professionally for over 10 years on and off. And then even when I was a child, uh, I I had a lot of exposure to lawyers. My parents are immigrants, so uh, small business owners my whole life. I was eight when I moved here, so my parents still don't speak great English, and I was just kind of the translator. And, you know, just in all of my experiences in law, I saw so many things happening all the time that didn't make sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Part of it because, of course, there's uh, procedures and processes that are, you know, unique to law that are mandated. Um, And over time, you learn them. But then there's a lot of legacy kind of uh, inefficiency and ineffectiveness which are not the same things, that are just kind of holdovers because that's just the way things have been done for so long. And I think in all of my jobs, you know, before I finished college, I was a legal secretary. I was a paralegal. I was an office manager for Solo. And then later on at Cypher Shaw, I took on more responsibility on the business side. But I think in all of my roles, I was able to succeed because I almost never accepted because that's how we've always done it as an answer. And I think that uh, my ability to find a solution in in many situations is because I'm generally looking for the solution that makes sense for everybody involved. Um, If people resist change, I don't necessarily assume they're wrong. I think it's important to kind of look at the situation and the problem and the pain points and the goals of everybody involved. And really, at the end of the day, you want it to make sense for everyone. And then the sparkle... um, we need a little bit more sparkle in law, don't you think? Um, I, I think, you know, it's not just because things need to be visually pleasing. It's just 
a sign of uh, investment that you care about the experience of your audience or the experience of your clients for things to feel good, things to look good. Um, And I think more and more lawyers are getting interested and educated about user experience, better interfaces, and how, how much that does actually affect people's willingness to engage, whether it's with a system or with a technology. And so I I believe that attention to how uh, things look is important. As I noted earlier in the podcast, after Jay left Safarth Shaw, she launched her own company called Six Parsecs. So me being a huge Star Wars fan, I had to ask how she came up with the name. So there's a short, fun answer and a very nerdy, longer answer. Let's hear them both. Let's hear them both. So the short, fun answer is you've, you've seen the movie, of course. You remember the scene. You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's a ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. The Kessel Run is actually a famous spice smuggling route that is 18 parsecs long. And then so when Han Solo says that uh, he can do it in less than 12, the, the difference is six. And to me, that means if you have the nerve and the confidence and then kind of the, the smarts and um, willing to put in the work, made, make the mods on the ships chart a new route, you can get there faster. Well, so then who's your favorite character? Favorite oh. Star Wars character? Han Solo. Yeah. <laughs> Hands down. I haven't seen the movie yet. Did you see it? Actually, dirty secret, I have not seen it. I'm afraid to see it because I, I, I'm kind of afraid I'm going to hate it. It's the same way. We can't, I, I don't know if I can accept the new Han Solo. Like we, no, Han Solo, my I, what do you mean? Harrison Ford is the, the OG Han Solo. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure I'll watch it, but um, I don't know. I just kind of want to hang on to the Han Solo in my memory. It's funny you say it because that's exactly one of the reasons I don't think I've been motivated to see it. Actually, yeah. this is the first Star Wars movie I have not seen on opening yeah. night. But it was, it's really because I, I really am kind of afraid to see it because if I hate it, like, man. Was that the full answer, though? Was oh, that no, the fun that answer? was a short fun answer. Oh, really? What's the, the, so what's the, the long answer? The long, nerdy answer is because, uh, of course, this I didn't know. This I looked it up because I couldn't name my company unless I right. just like made sure. Where'd you look it up? Wikipedia? Yeah, Wikipedia. I read like Wired articles and I went down like a link, you know, black hole right. of links, link jumping. Um, so a parsec is a parallax arc second. And it's just a way to measure the distance of very far objects in space. But um, I thought it was super interesting because you basically use the sun as a reference point And then you measure the distance and the, the angles. Um when the Earth is at different points in its orbit. Because, you know, when you kind of move your head like this, like different things uh, at different distances from you move at a different rate. And then so I thought it was great because um, I I personally think there's a lot of opinions in the marketplace, a lot of viewpoints. Um, I mean, we live in very opinionated times, right? But I think it takes time and patience to kind of take different measurements from different points of view, uh, put in the time to kind of, you know, use logic and inference and analysis to figure out what what is actually going on, because there is objective truth, right? But I think it's a mistake to dismiss uh, different viewpoints. I think it is important to take the time to kind of um, do the work. With as much thought as Jay put into naming her company, I was also not surprised to find out that Jay put a great deal of thought into leaving SafeHearth and launching Six Parsecs. After analyzing the market, She figured out there was probably a need for a company that caters to players in the legal industry that can provide thorough and unbiased research and insights about the legal market gathered from various data sources. One of the things that I think was 
amazing about my time at SciFarth is the institutional support that I got for a lot of the things that I wanted to try, a lot of the ideas that I, I put forth in terms of the, the capabilities and skills we needed to build to kind of uh, remain competitive. So one of those things was to build a cross-functional insights team that combined business intelligence, so kind of financial an- analysts, you know, some elements of da- data science, although in a fairly rudimentary way, and then market analysts and market research. So bringing together the, the qualitative and the quantitative skills necessary to understand our competitive context as well as how we're performing in the business. So kind of... Um, Having designed and built that team, kind of been in the marketplace looking for talent, kind of trying to shape those roles, trying to shape the services that, you know, we would provide to different stakeholders in the marketplace. I think one of the realizations I had was that it was incredibly difficult for many, many reasons, but I had grave doubts that many other firms would actually make that investment, although the need was there. And then so to me that, that you know, presented to me an opportunity because I, I felt that kind of uh, mar- the type of market insights I was generating would be kind of something that a lot of firms would need and would probably rather buy from a external provider. To that extent, I saw a gap in the marketplace because there's a lot of actually data and commentary in the market. It's not that we don't have enough. It's that the user experience, whether it's a senior researcher, a senior kind of uh, CI professional, strategists in firms, um, you know, actual practice group leaders, PNL owners in firms or, or managing partners or uh, forward thinking general counsel or legal ops. Like when you kind of think about the research and insights landscape from that those perspectives, right? It's a very fragmented experience because if you want to learn about a specific topic, it's very likely you're going to have to look at 12 sources that you may or may not know even exist. Um, part of that is because a lot of content about legal industry, legal markets, and legal innovation come from participants, whether they are kind of big content providers, whether they are... Um, legal tech companies, whether they're, you know, consultants, and there's a lot of consultants in the marketplace, a lot of them offer content as as a free kind of lead gen mechanism, right? They generate free content to let you know their viewpoint so that you will hire them to do uh, consulting for you or to so you'll buy their product. To me, that's that's very good. Like free content is great. But I think a lot of these folks that I'm talking about are busy, don't necessarily have time to go hunting for the best content. And of course, you know, it's not a problem that's unique to legal, but there has been a content explosion. And then so that means a lot of it is variable in quality. And then if you don't even have time to go look for all of it, you're certainly not going to have time to vet all of it. So I think that it's very important to kind of have a more impartial and consolidated source for intelligence. And uh, that's what I hope six parsecs will be. So you pretty much explained what the what is you do, but what's your elevator pitch? Like what's what give me an example of a deliverable to throw out there for a potential sure. client of yours. So the four, first two products that we're uh, planning to take to market um, later in this year and the beginning of next year are uh, two paid reports. Um, research reports, insights reports 
uh, one on the current state of play of innovation in the legal markets. Um, that will be different from some of the very good resources that have, have kind of covered that topic already, because I am hoping that it will be a more holistic view that synthesizes a lot of different trends and then analyzes how what, what it means for different players in the marketplace and what really is kind of uh, happening in the marketplace now versus kind of talk about exciting things that are going on that we're just discovering that may or may not become commercialized uh, to a point where it's going to affect business in the next five years, you know. Um, I think it's important to draw that distinction about new developments in the marketplace. It's going to affect your PNL next year versus five years, right? Business people and decision makers kind of need to know time frame. So I'm hoping to kind of inject that kind of analysis. I have been closer to decision makers than I think a lot of researchers. And so I, I do understand kind of how immediate the analysis needs to be. The second one will be more of a strategic analysis from the law firm point of view. So they, that will be targeted to managing partners and practice group leaders of the AMLAW 200. So I, the second report will focus on kind of the competitive imperative for the next five-year time frame. And now we get to the part where Jay explains one of the ways she helps make sense of the legal world by using Sparkle. Jay is a big proponent of the use of data visualization, or data viz. In fact, it was a data visualization that caught my attention in one of her articles. In just a minute, we're going to talk about that article, which Jay wrote about law firm economics and business generation. But to tell her story in that article, she used a great visual she created detailing big law revenues over a period of time. So it totally makes sense that Jay plans to build in good visuals into the insights she creates with six parsecs. There are more and more people working in the field that have far more robust kind of technical skill sets in data science, in statistics. But I think something I bring to the table that is a little bit different is my ability to kind of tell stories with the data and to act as a translator, because that is actually the piece that I think is critical. The sparkle. Critical. The sparkle. Yeah, the sparkle critical to getting people to pay attention and to kind of engage. And a lot of the the conversations I've had uh, with lawyers about data, there's a lot of questions that get asked, a lot of uh, challenges to what, what the analyst is saying, the data says, right? And then so I think whenever you're in a situation where you're pitting your data against somebody else's experience, you've lost already. You're not going to win that fight. And to me, data visualization is a way to kind of get everybody into a conversation and to raise questions that need to be answered, maybe in another meeting after additional work has been done. But it's very important that you start that dialogue and that you don't walk into the room intending to kind of uh, data shame people into your version of the truth or your vision of the truth. And so I think it's important that you present data as pictures because that's less threatening. And then, you know, easier to understand, way more accessible for a lot of people. And in any case, you don't want to use data to shut down conversations. You want to use them to start them, right? You want to use data to start conversations. And I think the, the data visualizations certainly help in doing that. We're going to step away from our conversation with Jay for just a few minutes. It's now time for this segment in our podcast where we sit down with the founder of a legal tech company. Today, we sit down with Jason Baymig, the founder of Ironclad. Jason, thanks for being here today. Tell us a little bit about Ironclad. 
Yeah, Ironclad is a contract management platform. So we work with large companies and the legal teams that work at those large companies to do two things. Uh, first is we help them make contracts faster and more efficiently and more compliant. And we help them keep track of the information in those contracts in a structured database that is cloud accessible and talks to all of the other systems that companies use. So it's really those two things, helping companies make contracts and keep track of the information in them more effectively. And what was it that inspired you to start the company? Because I, I saw you were a practicing attorney for quite a while, right? Yeah, I was a practicing attorney for a while. So I was at Fenwick and West, um, really liked being a practicing attorney, actually, um, and was doing uh, general corporate work for a lot of venture-backed tech companies. Sort of saw how central to the business process contracts are and how inefficiently that they're made and kept track of. And was really interested in the problem space around contracts. Uh, if, if it is able to be solved, it just produces so many immediate benefits to companies themselves and also to the legal work that depends on the information in those contracts. So I uh, just kind of saw one of these opportunities where there's one problem that is at the root of hundreds of different other problems. And if you solve that one problem, you can really make some transformational change. And you guys participated in Y Combinator too, right? Yeah, we did Y Combinator back in 2015, summer uh, session of Y Combinator. Great experience and felt super lucky to get to go through that program along with my co-founder. And what if, if there was one takeaway or the, the biggest benefit you got from Y Combinator, what was it? I think the benefit to YC is actually just focus. They are just ruthless at uh, forcing you to think about how your business is going to grow week by week. And at the early stages like that, it's so tempting to kind of build the five-year plan, which we definitely had. But the uh, push and ruthlessness and friendly competition within the batch to grow and get a product out and shipped was what was really most useful for us, I think. So getting back to the app, what are the, the high-level features of Ironclad? Yeah, so we're really a platform that helps companies go end-to-end -end on the contract creation process. Uh, the contract maintenance and record-keeping process is pretty similar across contract management systems, their databases largely. Uh, and so where we've really innovated is that platform for making contracts. And, you know, as you know, and uh, the folks listening to this podcast know, there's a lot that goes into making a contract. It's everything from kind of pulling the right data together uh, and the systems that might be involved in that, like Salesforce, to getting that initial draft of a contract done and putting the contracts playbook for companies into software form to getting documents actually signed once they've been approved by everyone. And then, of course, keeping track of the structured metadata associated with each contract. So our approach has been to where there are other systems that do parts of that workflow, like where DocuSign is great at collecting electronic signatures or where Salesforce is great at collecting customer information. We actually integrate with those systems and we let people use them just as they normally would. But what we're really doing is providing that single interface and that single platform that ties all of the data and ties all of that process together into one cohesive system. So as you make a contract on Ironclad, you might pull in data from Salesforce, you might get the right folks to review the contract on Ironclad. And when it comes time for signature, Ironclad might automatically prep that document, send it out for DocuSign and collect it when it comes back and file it in the right Google Drive folder, for instance. It's a really end-to-end -end platform. You mentioned a few other apps there, Salesforce, uh, Google, Dropbox. You guys have an API, right? Yeah, we have a modern API. Our customers use it to tie into all sorts of systems. Our uh, one of the 
things I'm most proud of at Ironclad is our product team. My co-founder, Kai, uh, has a couple computer science degrees from MIT and was a key engineer over at Palantir before joining me here at Ironclad. And our tech team is everywhere from Stanford, Berkeley, Carnegie Mellon, a lot of Palantir alums, uh, some Salesforce alums in there. So it's a really impressive tech team that is building our product as well. And who's Ironclad best suited for? Anybody doing contracts or law firms of a certain size? Uh, so just we're really laser focused on corporate legal departments. So companies that have at least one lawyer are the best fit for Ironclad. The more lawyers on the team and the more commercial lawyers in particular, the more valuable our software will be. But we provide a good ROI at any level of legal team that is at a company. Where can people find out more about Ironclad? Yeah, so we're just at ironcladapp.com, I-R-O-N-C-L-A-D-A-P-P.com. And feel free to shoot me an email as well. I love hearing from folks. I'm Jason at ironcladapp.com. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Jay. Jay has a name for the current climate of the legal market for big law firms. She calls it the new normal. And what she means by that is that the new reality is that for law firms serving corporate clients, the good old days of year-over-year revenue growth are over. And they're over for various reasons, such as shrinking legal budgets, the fact that companies are bringing more work in-house, and also the entry of other players in the legal industry, such as alternative legal service providers. As a result, it is hard for law firms to grow their businesses, and to do so, they must be thoughtful and creative. In this particular segment, you're going to hear Jay make reference to the AmLaw 200. What the AmLaw 200 is, is an annual ranking put together by American Lawyer Magazine of the United States' 200 largest law firms based on revenue. I think one of the features of the new normal is that, and, and I've mentioned this in a bunch of my articles, but it is incredibly hard to, to acquire new revenue. For many firms, the only kind of certain path forward they see to acquire new revenue is to acquire more lawyers. And then so I think that difficulty in driving growth is kind of informing a lot of decisions that you're seeing in the marketplace right now. Certainly, the lateral market and then kind of the ongoing frothy talk of mergers. I think um, it, it's at least in part because firms uh, do not see another easy way to to grow their top line. I think too that for better or for worse, the uh, AMLA rankings have certainly kind of been a factor in, in how firms think about growth. You do want to at least maintain your position on the rankings. Whether that's a smart thing to think or not, it doesn't matter. It's human nature. Like you see your firm on a list, there's a number next to it. And then I think it's a natural reaction that when that when you drop in the rankings, it feels bad. And then so just to stay, just to maintain your position on that list, you have to grow. And I, I think it takes very strong leadership, very kind of strong communication channels to to for you to actually as a managing partner, communicate to your constituents that, that the success measures you're putting forth are more meaningful than sheer size. But I think a lot of firm leaders are having trouble with that. So yeah, I think difficulty acquiring new revenue is one. I think certainly the, the reputational bonding that Bill Henderson has talked about in terms of client loyalty and client willingness to kind of buy the firm brand is weakening. Now, that's a different different kind of uh, viewpoint than relationships, right? The reputational piece has to do with, you know, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. I think there used to be a time when, when firms were 
assured of getting a certain type of work because it was considered to be of enough consequence to the company that you had to kind of get a blue chip firm or, you know, a big law firm. I think that kind of thinking has eroded a lot. The focus on reputations, or I'm sorry, the focus on relationships, I think is still strong. I think a third feature of the new normal is certainly insourcing. I think that law firms do need to think critically about why clients are bringing work in-house, what types of work uh, is being brought in-house, what that means for their business going forward for the next three to five years. Although I do think insourcing is going to hit a natural peak just because, you know, outside counsel, the, the entire concept of outside counsel is, is necessary because uh, in-house law departments are just not staffed uh, to solve the peak load problem, right? Like legal needs are not constant, they fluctuate, and sometimes uh, some types of legal needs are unpredictable. And then because of that problem, I believe that there will always be demand for outside counsel. So I think in terms of um, one, the third feature of the new normal, it is more of a question of, you know, corporate counsel becoming more proactive in designing their legal supply chain, kind of thinking from the ground up about what work do we need, absolutely need to send to law firms? What work can we do in-house? What work can we send to ALSPs? So I think clients taking a much more active role is a third feature. So am I interpreting right when I read your articles that it may be, I don't know what terms dishonest, but law firms, many law firms are not really having flat years, they're having down years. I think a lot of the reports about the marketplace say largely flat, right? But that's market-wide. When a market is flat, certainly many more firms um, have lower revenue this year than last year. That's what I mean when I say down year. But I think what a lot of the partners will care more about is whether, uh, you know, compensation went down, partner compensation went down. Partner compensation has generally, like, been up and down always. Like, so if I if I showed you the same kind of heat map, the same kind of, like, before and after the Great Recession, you wouldn't see such a dramatic difference pre and post. But I do think that... You know, if you take away some of the other, if you could strip away some of the other things that have been happening, like de-equitization and the change in leverage, certainly partner compensation, um, you know, it's it's tough to kind of keep partner compensation up every year. But yeah, when when you hear that the market is flat, that means lots of firms are losing share, market share. The new normal we just heard Jay talk about was really directed there to the United States' largest law firms, or the AMLAW 100. But there's also a new normal for the next 100, the second half of the AMLAW 200. When you look at the AMLAW 200, one thing that I do want to emphasize is that these are not the same 200 firms from 2008. Like, some of the smaller firms have come up from, like, outside the 200 as firms closer to the top consolidate, right? Some firms have dissolved some firms have been absorbed. And then so it's it's very important to understand that just because you see that phrase AMLAW 200 every year, it's not the same 200 firms. There's absolutely turnover. And then... Um, but, the tur- but the turnover compared to other businesses is still pretty low, right? Wasn't it 78%? Yes, yes. It was 78%, I think you said, right? Yes, yes. It's still pretty low compared to corporations. Um, but there is turnover. And so one of the things that I know, that, that I took away from your article was that, you know, when you kind of alluded to it there is the bigger firms are getting bigger on the, on the lower end of the, of the AM 100 and 
the closer to the 200 mark, they're getting smaller. Yeah. They're getting smaller. The smallest 20 firms, if you kind of look at the smallest 20 firms by revenue in 2017, and then you compare them to the 20 20 smallest uh, by revenue in 2008, yeah, they're smaller. Absolutely. So I, I tend to think that says something about whether we should only be looking at the 200. I would like to kind of do a broader analysis of the market, but it, it is very difficult to get data just because these are all private businesses. And I do emphasize that obviously this is self-reported data, so it, it's important not to take it as gospel. I think it's very useful, relevant data, and it's absolutely the best set that's out there. And then, you know, it still tells us something, right? This is what firms are reporting. And then so um, it tells us how they're representing their performance in the marketplace. And generally, the the broader trends line up between, um, you know, what the firms tell ALM and what uh, their bankers tell the market, right? That's why it's important to actually kind of read at least three sources. I think the three sources that I I relied on most were the AMLA data set from ALM and the City Hildebrandt report that comes out every year. I, I think they are an important data source because, of course, they, you know, have a group that lends to law firms. And so for that reason, they're very invested in, in having um, good visibility into firm performance. And then third, Thomson Reuters, they do that annual report every year with Georgetown. And I think that data set is also very valuable because, of course, Thomson Reuters has that peer monitor data set where, where they're pulling data from firms that have opted into that program so they can get a benchmark of key metrics against their peers. So I think it's important to kind of look at the picture holistically. But it is generally very difficult to get visibility into the mid-market, so the mid-sized firms. And the reason that I think they're important is that when you kind of think about big law and you think about the largest corporations in the world, they don't do business with each other exclusively. Like when you look at some of the largest corporations, they're still, they have smaller firms on their roster. And then so I would like to see how they're doing in terms of market share for for that customer segment. But Again, the data is harder. One of the things I do want to point out, though, there is more frequent turnover in terms of churn in the lower uh, second hundred. So firms will kind of, um, in the 180s, 190s, they'll like drop off, they'll come back, they'll drop off, they'll come back. So I do think that uh, performance there appears to be more volatile. But I think in terms of the dispersion, I, I do think it's interesting because it tells me or it, it tells me that there's probably a good chance that the mid-market firms tend to cut into big law firm spend like on in, in a fluctuating way year to year. But I think that would be very interesting. Okay, so to close this loop on the, on the law firms, you, I think this might have been from the first article. You said to, to survive, firms must compete more intensely, think more creatively, and act more objectively. Expand on that just a little bit. Like, If a managing partner came to you and said, what do you mean by that? What do I need to do at my firm to grow the business? What are you going to suggest in 2018? That's a great question. I, I actually got readers asking me like, okay, <laughs> so growth is dead. What should I do? Um, I had a, I had a few managing partners email me actually saying they enjoyed the article, but I, I didn't provide any answers. And then so um, I'll tell you a version of the reply I sent to the nicest email. <laughs> I said, strategery is only strategic when it uh, considers the specific unique circumstances of each player, right? So you have to take into consideration your current market position, the capabilities, so I mean legal capabilities, the practices that you have to 
offer in the marketplace that are actually differentiated, that varies from firm to firm, right? And then I, I do think each firm has to consider the cultural and governance constraints that are in place, they have to be realistic about how much they can change and how fast and how much they really need to change. And the answers may be different across the firm because many firms are kind of cobbled together from different business units. And I think one of the things that's very important that gets kind of lost in a lot of the talk about the market is that competition occurs at the practice level, not the firm level. So when you kind of think about a corporate practice, they're trying to win work, they're competing against other corporate practices, right? It's very easy for outsiders to assume like brand A going against brand B, right? And even if brand A has better equity, like in terms of mindshare or reputation overall, very possible that a smaller, less known firm may have a better value proposition in that practice area. So it's very important to look at your business on a practice by practice level and to understand what clients are coming back. Like how much revenue do you have in the pipeline right now that you know is coming back next year? Like you really have to look at your own business. Certainly you have to consider market context and market trends, but it's more important that you understand and are realistic about your own position. So I don't have like an easy secret. There is no secret sauce. Um, and uh, as I replied in, to one of those emails, I think the secret is not in the knowing, it's in the seeking. You have to seek your own strategy. One of my very favorite articles by Jay is one called Stop the Blame Game. Legal innovation is an extreme sport. It resonated with me because as the founder of a company, my job will always require me to pound the pavement and try to develop new business. As is the case with most lawyers, at the time I left the law firm, I wasn't very good at marketing and trying to develop business, so I had a lot to learn. Making it even tougher is the thing I'm trying to sell, new and alternative ways of providing legal services, is not always easily understood to some people I talk to. As a result, I was often muttering to myself, why don't people get it? Why don't they understand what I'm trying to do? What I came to learn, Jay explains perfectly in her Extreme Sports article. She points out that unlike buyers for some products and services, there is no one easy, identifiable person at a company or law firm that will pull the trigger on buying that great new legal tech app or hire your company to do legal work in a different way. The person that might ultimately buy the shiny new object varies from firm to firm and company to company. And what Jay points out in her article is that it is the responsibility of the person selling the product to figure out who that person is. And most importantly to Jay, we need to stop using the because lawyers excuse. Stop using the excuse that it's hard to sell legal tech to lawyers or hard to create change in law firms and legal departments because lawyers are conservative or because lawyers are risk averse. I think I have a a slightly different viewpoint on this because, um, well, one, I haven't only worked with lawyers. In another life, I was a career coach, so I got to kind of take a tourist like view through a lot of different jobs. And I've kind of had a lot of people complain to me about their work or their career, or their workplace, workplace culture. And I hear the same complaints everywhere. So I think that it's not because lawyers, it's because people. I don't know. I, I just don't think that one, it's not helpful. And two, it's not true. And then I think, too, as a non-lawyer, I have been called that plenty of times. It doesn't bother me at all because I'm not not a lawyer. So I I don't care. I know it bothers other people and I totally get it. It troubles me because it shows me that lawyers haven't learned the difference between like, let's say IT professional versus, you know, kind of a a developer, right? Like they 
haven't had the time or interest or, you know, haven't put forth the effort to learn the different types of professionals that could help them. And so I think in the past, you know, they've treated project managers, process engineers, um, legal solutions, the kind of more emerging new legal tech solutions architects kind of as fungible support people who are just here to help them and they don't really care why. And I think that has created resentment in, in those people. And I that's completely understandable. But then I think my general point is that it doesn't help to say because lawyers, blah, 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 it's not going to work, right? If it's not going to work, why don't we all just go home? Why bother trying anything? Which in your point, really, when you take away from that article is it isn't helpful. The way I understood it is you're saying a lot of people trying to sell into the legal market use it as an excuse. And it's really incumbent on you as the person selling the service or whatever the, the tech is to figure out who the buyer is and show your value, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're not going to argue your way into a sale, man. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, you're not going to argue someone, like berate someone or guilt someone or shame someone into buying your product. And then so kind of saying because lawyers, blah, blah, blah. And then that's why, you know, my company didn't take off. Like, well, your company still didn't take off. So that's not helping you, right? To me, I think the other harmful thing is when you kind of start thinking that certain groups of people can't change or you can't understand them, you're going to stop trying, right? If, if you believe lawyers act in ways that elude your comprehension, you're going to stop trying to understand them. And if you stop trying to understand your customer, you're probably not going to succeed in selling to that. And then when I kind of think about because lawyers, the other reason I don't like that is because it's too generalized. To me, you know, a lot of tech solutions or, you know, kind of different offerings in the marketplace, they solve a more specific problem. It's not this kind of generalized human condition that we're trying to resolve, right? So when I think you think about point solutions in the marketplace, you have to make an effort to kind of understand how people, different users, whether it's lawyers or the support professionals that are touching every piece of that process, experience the problem. And you do have to try harder to make sure that your product is actually helping everybody who is touching the process, that you're kind of considering their user experience or their work context. And then you also have to think about the implementation process and the buy process, right? I think it's all part and parcel of making your product easy to buy. I think when you say because lawyers, you might get lazy enough that you kind of skip that sort of thinking because it is important. And to me, I think kind of a blame-based narrative, again, puts the damper on all of that. Like everything costs time, everything costs money, and everything takes effort. And then so I think if you burn some of that, blaming one of the constituent groups, it's not going to get you further. It's going to slow you down. I appreciate your time. If people want to get a hold of you and learn more about Six Parsecs, where do they find you? I'm on Twitter all the time. We do have a landing page up. It's a very, it's a one-page website, but I write at Legal Evolution. I'll be writing for the American Lawyer. Once in a while, I'll still post on Medium, but I check Twitter every day. So that's all we have for this episode. We appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on pretty much any major podcasting platform, such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like us, we hope you leave a good review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been Technically Legal.